I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, reading the first three verses. The first three verses in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we begin our consideration of this statement last Sunday morning. And there I was indicating that clearly here we are starting a new section of this mighty epistle. We have finished with the doctrinal section, the section exclusively devoted to doctrine. And now we have come to the realm of practical application. And uh, we spent our time in showing that there were certain immediate and preliminary lessons that one could gather from that fact alone. The first obvious thing is that uh, we must always follow the scriptures. We mustn't pick and choose. You don't stop the epistle to the Ephesians at the end of chapter 3. You must go right on to the end. We must read the whole Bible, every part of it, every portion. It is all God's word. And nothing is more dangerous than to be selective in our reading and our study. The second thing, obviously, was that uh, after all, uh, we are called to live a certain type of life. Christianity is not merely a matter of doctrine. It isn't only a matter of experience. It is both those, and we must put them at the very beginning. But it doesn't stop at that. It is a life which we have to live. What is called here a walk. It's a way of life. The Christians were first called the people of the way. It is a conversation as the Apostle Peter describes it in that section that we read just now. Well, then the third thing was, of course, that the Apostle indicates here by this word, therefore, and indeed we spent our whole time last Sunday morning in just drawing out the various things that the word therefore says to us. The third thing was that this life which we are to live is one which is a deduction that we draw from the doctrine. Now that is the New Testament uh, teaching concerning sanctification. Sanctification is not so much something that you receive as a gift subsequent to your salvation. It is the outworking of the salvation that you have received in terms of the understanding of the doctrine that you hold. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, so the way of sanctification is, first and foremost, to take a firm hold of the doctrine. There can be no true sanctification without an understanding of doctrine. It is the outworking of the doctrine that we have received. It is so to see it and so to know it, that we shall be filled with such a love to God and a desire to please him, that all the commands and instructions and injunctions will not be hard and will have no give us no impression of narrowness, we shall delight in them because of the truth that we have apprehended. Very well, we take up at that very point. And the next thing which we clearly must look at is this. What is the character of this life 
which we are to live. We are called to live it. We see, we deduce it from the doctrine. Well, what is its character? What is its nature? Now, you notice that the apostle, first of all, gives us a general description of it. And then he proceeds to deal with it more in particular respects and in details. For instance, let me show you. The general character of the life is this, that it is to be worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. That's its general character. Then, having laid down the general character, he comes to one particular respect. Uh, for instance, that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit uh, in the bond of peace. And we do that with lowliness and meekness and so on. He goes on with that until the end of verse 16. Then he takes up another respect in which this general character of the life is to be lived. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, but in this other way. So that is the analysis of his method. General description first, then particular. I must just take a moment to emphasize that. That again is something that this apostle always does. He never goes to particulars without first laying down the general. There is indeed a, a theme there for many sermons. I must resist that. But let me put it to you like this. It seems to me that most people get into trouble in their Christian lives because they rush to particulars. What about this, they say? Now, the answer to that is, go back and find the general principle. You'll never understand details except in the light of the whole. The whole is greater than the parts, and you'll never understand the parts except in the light of the whole. One man wants to know what's the answer to this, peace or war. Another man wants, how can I overcome this? They've never really faced the whole truth, their whole position. And that is why they go wrong. Now the apostle is very careful to start with the general. And it's only after he's made that clear that he comes down to the realm of the particular and the detail. Well, very well, we start therefore this morning in looking at this general description that he gives of the character of this Christian life. And here it is. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. If we only know what that means, most of our problems are immediately solved. Very well, what does he mean by it? Well, let me give you another translation, and a better one. That he walk worthy of the calling with which ye are called. Vocation, of course, in a sense means calling, but uh, it has by now a slightly different meaning which can lead us astray. And actually, the apostle did write the calling with which you are called. Now, almost every word here is of very great importance and significance, and uh, we must look at them uh, one by one. The first word, of course, is the word worthy. I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the calling wherewith or whereby or into which you have been called. What does this word worthy mean? Well, the learned authorities tell us that it has two basic ideas in it. 
and certainly they're both very important. The first idea is this. It's the idea of equal weight, balancing, uh, that uh, two things should be of the same weight so that when you put one on one side of the scale and the other on the other, there's no tilting to one side or the other. They're just balancing happily and comfortably. The weight on the one side is equal almost exactly to the weight on the other side. It's a question of equal weight. Now that's the origin, the derivation of the word that is translated here as worthy. And what a significant meaning it therefore gives to it. You see what the Apostle is saying is this. Uh, I'm beseeching you, he says, I am admonishing you that you must always give equal weight in your life to doctrine and practice. Not all the weight on doctrine and none on practice. Not all the weight on practice and just a, a little, if any at all, on doctrine. No, no, that's imbalanced. That's, that's lopsided. No, the, the thing to do is just to see the scales uh, perfectly balanced. I don't stay with this because we spend some time with it last Sunday morning, but uh, we must never forget this. We must never ignore it. It doesn't matter, my dear friend, how packed your head may be with knowledge. If you're failing in your life, you'll be a hindrance to the spreading of the kingdom. You'll bring the cause of God and of his Christ into disrepute. But equally it is true to say that if your conception of the Christian life is that you just live a good life and that you're moral and that you can't give a reason for the hope that is in you and you know no doctrine, again, you will be a hindrance to the cause. No, no, let there be an equal weight. Let it be worthy. Only let it be worthy of this vocation wherewith we are called. Now, the Bible is full of this kind of argument there's a very uh, fine statement of this uh, self-same point in the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, where he puts it like this. Here were people in trouble, you see, and he says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name in that he have ministered to the saints and do minister. These Hebrews were very good on the practical side. They'd been very kind to the saints and to the ministers and they'd been ministering to their wants. He praises them, but now he says, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope, unto the end. What he's saying is this. You've been showing marvelous diligence on the practical side. Now then, put the same diligence into this question of grasping the doctrine and the faith and having the full assurance of hope on the other side. Equal weight. Balance it up. Don't be all on one side or the other. Keep the balance perfect. That's precisely what the Apostle is appealing here uh, to the Ephesians to put into practice. Well, now that's one idea, but let us look at the other. The other idea in this word is the idea of uh, something that is becoming. Now, it's interesting how when these translations were made, how... The men responsible uh, translate the same word. 
in different ways and use different translations at different points. They might very well have translated this like this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk in a manner which is becoming of the calling wherewith you are called. Now, the same apostle, you see, has uh, said a similar thing in writing to the Philippians. And there they translate it like this. He talks about himself being in prison and suffering and how they likewise were called to suffer and to you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his name's sake. And here's his appeal. Whatever happens to you, only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same idea. Well, now what is it? Well, here you see the idea is of matching. Uh, it's of uh, putting on a piece of clothing, uh, something that uh, is consistent with, uh, something that is suited to, uh, something that is becoming. Uh, he means, if you like negatively, that we must always avoid a clash. There must never be a clash between our doctrine and our practice. Now, this is important in the matter of dress, isn't it? You must never have a clash of colors. It isn't becoming. There are certain colors that don't match. They don't go together. And uh, when you see a person with these uh, clashing, contrasting colors, well, uh, there's something incongruous about it. And you say that person's lacking in taste. It calls attention in the wrong way. No, no, it, it must always be becoming. And, of course, you can extend the idea. The same clothing isn't always becoming at the same age. There's nothing quite so ridiculous as to see an oldish person dressing as if he or she were young, and vice versa. There are certain things that are becoming. Now, that's the idea that the apostle has got a hold of here, that uh, there must never be this element of incongruity. There must never be these, none of these sharp contrasts. Of course, I know that there is a kind of perverted modern art that delights in that sort of thing. You get it not only in art, but in music. People who despise melody and who think that there's nothing wonderful except some cacophony and clashes and discords. But that's modern perversion. That's not art. No, no, real art always has beauty because it always has at its center the idea of balance and of congruity. There's no beauty apart from that. Now, this isn't a theory. This is something that is universe, has been universally held throughout the ages. Let us beware of these perversions. Now, the apostle is using this kind of picture. Let your walk, he says, be as becometh the calling wherewith you are called. Now, let me take up another word that the apostle used. He's got a phrase like this in writing to Titus along the same lines. He talks about adorning the doctrine. Adorning the doctrine. And here again, uh, the same idea comes out. The picture, if I may so put it, is this. The doctrine is, as it were, the foundation garment. The kind of fundamental garment. Then what is the life? Well, it's the adorning that you add to the foundation garment. There must be some basis, some foundation, something to build upon. Well, then you add to that. And you must always be careful that your decorations, that your adornments, 
are suited to and are congruous with and match this foundation garment that you've already put on. The doctrine is the foundation. The life is the adorning. And, of course, the purpose of the adorning is to make it attractive, to make the doctrine attractive, uh, to cause people to admire it, to look at it and say, isn't that wonderful? I'd like that, and I'd like to look like that. Now, that's exactly the way in which the apostle so frequently introduces this appeal for conduct in terms of the doctrine that he has already outlined. Now then, let me put it in this form. The apostle you see here, as everywhere else, does not merely issue a general appeal to Christian people to be good or to live a good life or to be philanthropic or something like that. Never. The appeal is always in terms of the doctrine. It must always come out of it. It must always match it. And therefore you and I are to live the kind of life that will adorn the doctrine. What is the doctrine? Well, he proceeds at once to tell us. The doctrine is this. The vocation, the calling wherewith we are called. We are to be worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now, once more, we are dealing with a phrase that is very typical and characteristic of the New Testament. And uh, as it is one of these uh, so constantly repeated phrases, it is again important that we should grasp its terms without any question or without any misunderstanding. What is the doctrine? It is this. We are to live this kind of life for this reason, that we are the called. Worthy of the calling wherewith you have been called. Now, this is the characteristic way in which the New Testament always describes Christians. Christian people are the called of Jesus Christ. What is a church? Well, a church, the church is nothing but a gathering of the called, the very term in Greek for it is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. Now, the apostle, you see, has just been talking about that at the end of the previous chapter. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church, amongst the called ones, amongst the called out ones. Christians are people who have been called out of the world, out of darkness, into his most marvelous light. Now then, here is obviously something that is very vital. The Christian must never be thought of as someone who has decided to take up a certain type of life. Christianity, the Christian life, must never be thought of in terms of something that we have decided to take up. It's the exact opposite. It is something into which we have been called. That is why I say it's unfortunate that this has been translated as vocation. 
And yet, you see, it is a departure from the original meaning even of that. But we talk about a man taking up a vocation. No, no, you don't take up a true vocation. It's something to which you've been called. And that is why we must hold on to this word calling. So the Apostle says that the way in which we live the Christian life is, first of all, always to remember that we have been called to this. Called from, called to. And this is the thing to which we've been called. Well now, he's already, of course, been dealing with this. Uh, Way back in the first chapter, he put it like this. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then he reminded them of it in the second chapter. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, and so on. There it is. But now, once more, you see, he comes back to it. And he emphasizes it anew and afresh. And the point, therefore, I'm concerned to make this morning is this, that this is the greatest motive of all to sanctification. The reason why we are to live a holy and a sanctified life is that we are the called ones. Not merely because it's a good thing not to sin and to live the Christian life. Not because these things are good in and of them. Not at all. Primarily because we have been called to this. Now, that means that we must look again at this whole idea of the calling. The calling wherewith you have been called. What does the Bible tell us about this calling? Well, its teaching is perfectly plain. There are two types of call. The first is a a general call. And the general call is made to everybody. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. There is a universal call going out from the church to the whole world today to repent and to believe the gospel. That is a message that is addressed to every person. Repent, believe the gospel. It's a universal call. Now, the word call is used in that sense in the scripture. But clearly, that isn't its only meaning. Because you find it used in another way in which it is much more particular. So that my second heading is this, that in addition to the general call, there is what has always been called the effectual call. You see, this call to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is made to all, but all do not respond to it. There are only some who are Christians, there are only some who are in the church. There is a difference between these and those. They've all received the general call What is this difference? Well, the answer is that the believers, the Christians, are those to whom the call has come effectually. The effectual call. Now, let me give you some examples and illustrations to show you what I mean. Take what this Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians 
in the first epistle and in the first chapter and in the 18th verse. He says there, you remember, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, he says, it is the power of God. There are two groups of people. There are people to whom the preaching of the cross is foolishness. There are people to whom it is the wisdom of God. And there he starts with his fundamental distinction. There are the perishing, there are the saved. Well, does he describe them in other terms? He does. Listen to this in verses 23 and 24. He says uh, the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you see, the contrast is this. The perishing and the saved, the Jews and the Greeks to which it is a stumbling block and a foolishness, and those who are called. The called are the same as the saved. And that is the characteristic New Testament employment of this particular term and category. The Christians, the saved, the believers, are always described as the called ones. These who have been separated from the others, and they've been called from there to here, and they are the called unto us which are called. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. One other thing is of importance, and that is, that we must notice the point at which the calling comes in this question of salvation. And the answer is that calling comes before justification. Listen to the apostle putting it in Romans 8.30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Predestination, calling, justification, ultimately glorification. Now then, what does this mean? Well, it means this, you see. It is that mighty action of the Spirit of God in the soul and upon it whereby the Holy Spirit introduces a new principle of life and of action. And it is this principle of life and of action that enables us to believe. We are called to believe. Now take the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ himself put it. You've got it in John 6, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me, draw him. No man can come unto me, except the Father which hath sent me, draw him. The call is the thing that draws him. There's power in the call, and it draws him. He can't come without it. Or take the way in which we are given an account of the first convert, in a sense, in Europe. There is the Apostle Paul preaching 
to the little prayer meeting of women outside the city walls in Philippi on a Sunday afternoon. And there he spake unto them the word of the Lord. And there was a woman named Lydia, a seller of, of, of purple from the city of Thyatira, listening to him, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things that were spoken of, of Paul. That's the call, the opening of the heart, which makes us attend and believe. Without it, the word has no effect. Now, as I was just saying, the apostle has rarely said all this at the beginning of chapter 2. And he's got all that in his mind as he talks here about the calling wherewith you have called. This is the position. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He comes back again and says it again in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us. A dead person can't quicken himself. God alone can quicken. And that's how he does it. Oh, there's a wonderful illustration of all this, it seems to me, in the Gospels. It is, of course, the case of Lazarus. Lazarus died and had been dead for four days and his body was in the grave and putrefaction had already started and our Lord arrives on the scene. And this is, you remember, what happened. Take away the stone, he said, and then spoke, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. He called him from the dead back to life. And you see, the power was in the call. The power was in the word spoken. That's what he means by the calling wherewith you were called. The word has come effectually with power. The Holy Spirit was in it in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And when the word comes in the power of the spirit, it calls us from death and the grave spiritually into life and into newness of living. Again, listen to Paul putting it in Romans 4, 7. God, he says, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. And so Abram and Sarah, though they were over 90 years of age, could have a son. Impossible naturally, but not with God. When God calls, he gives the power and it's effectual, it's certain, it must happen. And it did happen. And you and I as Christians are the called. Out of that death and grave of sin, when we were yet dead in trespasses and sins, the mighty word came and called us and enabled us to hear it, put life into us, quickened us. Quickening is the giving of life. And you notice how careful Peter is to say all that in that first epistle portions of which I read at the beginning. Born again, he says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever, the word of the gospel. It's got the life in it, and it comes in the power of the Spirit, and the seed is implanted, and the response is made.
And did you notice further the argument that Peter used? It's an exact parallel to this argument of the Apostle Paul here. But he says, As he which hath called you is holy, that's God. As he which hath called you when you were in that grave and called you out of it, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. But again he says it in the second chapter. Look here, says the apostle to these people. There's no need for you to argue or to hesitate about living this Christian life. Do you know what you are? Do you know who you are? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? Why has God called you to be such? Here's the answer. That ye may show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Well now, that's exactly the thing that the apostle is saying here. That we have been called in order that we may show forth these things. Be worthy, he says, of the vocation, the calling to which you have been called. That's the foundation garment. Now then, he says, adorn it. Live in such a way that you'll set it out. Make it look yet more wonderful, more glorious, and more attractive. And you do that, I say, by applying the doctrine and the knowledge that you have. Very well, I say, this is the way in which you and I have got to live. We've got to live as those who realize that we have been called by God into this heavenly calling. Very well, we can only do it then as we know the doctrine. And all I want to do in a few moments before I close is just to remind you of some of the things which must always be in our minds and governing our conduct and our behavior. We have been called to this great and wondrous and high calling. What is it we've got to match? Here I am with ribbons of every description and color. Which am I to choose? What am I to put on this foundation garment? Well, here are some of the things. I am always to remember this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's what I find in the third verse of this epistle to the Ephesians at the very beginning. My dear friends, every argument and every excuse has already gone, hasn't it? It's no use talking to me about your difficulties. It's no, I'm not interested in what you've got to say about 1957 and life as it is in London today and all the problems and the difficulties. You have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing beyond that. 
Everything you need is at your disposal. It's all in Christ and you are in him and he is in you. Very well, we must always remember that. I must live in a way that I shall exemplify that and bring that out and make that manifest. And then he reminds me also in the next verse, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What has he called me to? Why has he done all this? Was it merely that I might not go to hell? Was it merely that I might know that my sins are forgiven and can then carry on? Not at all. I have not been called only to be forgiven. He hath chosen me to be holy and to be blameless before him in love. And I have no right to argue, nor to question, nor to query. That's the thing to which he's called me. The next thing he reminds us of is this in the fifth verse. Having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And we have seen how later he says that we are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We've been called into the family of God. We are God's children. And I am to live in a way that will reflect credit and glory upon the family and upon the Father. The British are in any foreign country is conscious of the fact that the honor of his country is in a sense in his hands. The honor of the family is in the hands of the child of the family. And if the child doesn't behave as he should, the people won't blame the child. They'll blame the parents, and rightly so. The honor of the family is in the child, and you and I are children of God. So that as I walk the streets of life, I must always remember that I am a child and a member of the family, having adopted us. To the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And what else? Well, because I'm a child, I'm an heir. Because he reminds these people that they have the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. It isn't so much what I am now as what I'm going to be. I'm not only a child of God, I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. You read about people being groomed for certain things, don't you? Taught manners and conduct and deportment and behavior before being presented at court or before taking part in something quite right. There is a day coming in your life and mine when we shall be presented to God. Now unto him, says Jude, who is able to keep us from falling and to present us 
faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. My friends, you and I are to live in a way as realizing that we are going on to that. And having been presented, we shall be given the reward and enter into the inheritance. It's coming. The purchased possession. We are now receiving first fruits and foretastes of it, but we are going into it. And not only that, he's been reminding us that already, you'll find it at the end of the first chapter, we are members of the body of Christ, the church, he says, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and in all. We are joined to Christ as the members of the body belong to the head. We are parts of him, of his flesh and of his bones, he's going to say in chapter 5. Not only that, you remember. We have been quickened with Christ. We have been raised from death with Christ. Yes, and we are at this moment seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, we are there, we are in Christ, and where he is, we are. We must live, I say, as realizing that we are seated there, in the heavenly places, even at this very moment. And then we must always remember that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And that there is something of the fullness of God in us. This is sanctification, this is holiness, this is the way to live, to realize that these things are true. And then let me add this, the apostle has been making a great deal of it. That's what I'm called to. And then never forget the way in which the calling has taken place. What is it that has made it possible for me to come from death to life? from that grave of sin to newness of life and to be seated in the heavenly places with Christ? The answer is this, it's the free grace of God. By grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are his workmanship. While we were dead and desperate and hopeless and the creatures of lusts, he quickened us in spite of it. And how did he... Do it all, and what made it possible, if I may so phrase it, for God to do it? And you remember the answer, don't you? It is by the blood of Christ. Ye that sometimes were far off or made nigh, by the blood of Christ. You remember how Peter puts it? You haven't been redeemed with gold and silver from your vain conversation, he says, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So that when sin comes and tempts you, or whether you, when you're doubtful whether you shall go on with the Christian life, and whether it's hard and makes too many demands, remember the price that was paid for your deliverance, your ransoming. Christ gave his life unto death that you might be rescued and that you might become holy. And then remember the power that is given to you, the exceeding greatness of his power to us that believes. Let us remember also that we must be and can be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. There it is. And finally, I believe he adds this. 
Did you notice that the apostle makes this appeal as the prisoner of the Lord? Why that? Well, I think it's just this. He says, you are to live as I am trying to live and as I am living and I am living the life of a prisoner. I am actually in prison at the moment. And why am I there? Well, because I don't decide what I do. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. I am his bond slave. And it is because I am loyal to him and preaching his gospel that I'm in prison. But it doesn't worry me. I'm not in charge. He is. He's called me. And I am his bond slave, his servant. I'm his prisoner. And you and I are to live as the prisoners of Jesus Christ. Ye are not your own. Ye have been bought with a price. We have no right to live as we choose and as we please. We were the prisoners of Satan. We are now the prisoners of Jesus Christ. We should have no desire save his. Let nothing please nor pain me. Apart, O Lord, from thee. I beseech you, as one who is a prisoner myself, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Oh, if we but saw this calling, if we but grasped its meaning in all its parts, there would be no problem about Christian living. We would count it our supreme delight to hear his dictates and obey. Amen.